Hi there. It's great to see you again. No, I mean that. I know it's only been a week, but I actually really missed you. Plus, on today's episode, we're heading back to our roots. Although this series was inspired by the pandemic and this idea of sharing our inside stories under lockdown, we haven't really touched too much on the pandemic itself. And so today, we take a little journey into a hospital and the world of treating COVID-19. Joining me today is Brian Cuthbertson. Brian is an attending physician practicing critical care at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. Brian, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. Brian, tell us what you do at, at the hospital. So I'm a critical care physician. I uh, am one of a team of physicians who covers the various critical cares or intensive cares, depending on the terminology you like to use here at Sunnybrook. Uh, so we are probably the largest intensive care unit in Canada. Uh, we have about 75 critical care beds under the care of our group of critical care physicians and uh, look after something like four and a half thousand critically ill patients a year uh, in our beds. And when we say critically ill, so these are the people who have the most pressing issues that, that require the most care, I would assume. Yeah, that's right. Um, the thing they have in common is they are the sickest people in the hospital. When did COVID-19 start to cross your own radar? Yeah, well, it was the beginning, uh, the middle of March, and um, uh, all of a sudden uh, we realised that we had a problem in Canada. We'd start, we'd seen it around the world, as, you know, clearly China first, Italy, you know, and Iran, uh, followed by the UK and France and Spain, hit next, and it suddenly became clear that uh, Canada was next in line, and uh, so that was the middle of March. The country went into lockdown. I was out of the country at the time and had to get back quite quickly um, and uh, we've been uh, at it ever since, so to speak. So tell me, Brian, what was going through your mind as you're watching kind of this slow drum roll of this disease sort of embracing one country after another and heading inexorably towards Canada? Yeah, well, it was a sense of uh, dread and fear, unfortunately. Um, we knew this was coming, so to speak, well before COVID-19 appeared. We'd had uh, previous epidemics and pandemics of uh, respiratory uh, viruses, uh, including, of course, SARS, which, of course, affected Toronto as much or more than anywhere, uh, you know, 17 years ago. Uh, and in fact, a lot of us had been doing work planning for the last oh, 10 years plus to deal with future pandemics, knowing that indeed it would come. So, yeah, we had a... We had a sense of realism and uh, indeed some element of dread about what was about to hit us. And I'm, I'm guessing there must have been preparatory meetings at the hospital. You know, how do we, how do we formulate a plan here to, to attack this incoming threat? Yes, there's some of it was part of existing plans. Uh, but of course, as always, the best laid plans often get, have to be put aside. And uh, we had to do very major reconfiguration of how we work as a hospital, including how we work 
uh, in the critical care uh, to get ourselves prepared for the uh, you know, p potential very large numbers of patients that could be coming in our direction. So really it affected every aspect of the function of the hospital. As the number of COVID cases began to increase in the hospital, obviously the, the tempo in the hospital would change. What is a, is a typical day like or what has a typical day been like during what we might call the, the peak here in Toronto? Yes, it's, um, it's been quite weird, actually. Um, uh, hospitals can, uh, as you enter a hospital, it can hide a whole lot of things going on. The hospital's been very quiet. Uh, all the non-essential staff have not been at work. Of course, sadly, uh, uh, patients who would be normally coming in for treatments, family who would normally be coming in to visit, uh, have not been able to get access uh, to nearly the same extent. So there's, there's a strange kind of hush around the corridors of the hospital, but that's really covering up uh, a high level, uh, if not necessarily a frantic level of activity within the areas that are caring for COVID patients in particular the critical care units. So, uh, yeah, so a sort of a, a cover of serenity, which is, uh, you know, and b but below it, that very high level of activity with a lot of sick people coming in our direction. I've seen some video behind the scenes in hospitals, and I've read interviews with healthcare professionals, and several of them have described that when they're entering these units that have a large number of COVID patients, that one of the things that first strikes them as they walk in is they hear people coughing. And I'm wondering if that's something that you have also observed and heard here in Toronto. Uh, the units, um, when, I, when I came into work just after this started, um, you, you certainly expected the units to feel and sound very different. Uh, I have to say, to the enormous credit of our team, uh, they've managed to maintain an extraordinary level of composure in a very difficult situation with you know, nurses and doctors and, our, and the breadth of our team, respiratory therapists, uh, dietitians, pharmacists, all working in environments and in ways that are quite different. But a sense of calm was pervading, which was very nice to see. Uh, and um, yeah, the, the, the sound of coughing, well, funnily enough, when you're in a critical care unit uh, often of course people are being supported on breathing machines and uh, and of course in that situation they aren't coughing they're sedated they have tubes down to help with their breathing and they're on a mechanical breathing machine a ventilator um, so perhaps a little bit different on a covid ward environment from a covid intensive care environment i know that for people who are put on a ventilator, some of those people will have positive outcomes and some of those people will not. I can only imagine the, the fear or trepidation of a patient who is conscious and who is aware that they are now entering, I don't want to call it the, the final phase of treatment, but obviously a very critical phase of treatment from which it's unclear for them whether they, they will return or not. Um, is that a little bit what it's like? I'm kind of going by conjecture here based on what I've read, but what, what is it like for a patient who is who's faced with that next step? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the answer often is it's extremely scary. Um, of course, we deal in my team, we deal with critically ill patients uh, often, but uh, it's often the case that they're either unwell enough that they're not conscious uh, or perhaps they don't really have insight into just how unwell they are at that moment. 
But with COVID, for someone who comes in with COVID, who sees themselves deteriorating, and that's often over a few days, who sees their lung function getting worse, who knows they're needing more oxygen, who's getting more breathless, then that slow decline towards needing a ventilator, combined with the early press coverage suggesting such a poor outcome for people who go on to a ventilator, I think indeed made it very scary indeed. That's of course added to by the fact that their loved ones are, uh, often cannot be with them because of the pandemic situation. And uh, so you can see how that could amplify into a really uh, scary and terrifying situation, both at the time when you may be going on to a ventilator, but also remember people on ventilators aren't always kept uh, fully sort of deeply sedated or fully anaesthetized and particularly later on can be more awake and again they uh, don't have their loved ones beside them something we would normally try and uh, achieve as much as we can so yeah it's hard to estimate uh, or even imagine just how uh, terrifying that must have been for for many people for physicians and frontline healthcare workers Normally, as you mentioned, family members or close loved ones are permitted in the hospital and can be with these people during this very, very difficult moment in their lives. And now, in some of the coverage I've seen, you know, physicians and nurses and others are being put in the position of, of being an intermediary and bringing in a phone or an iPad or some other device that will allow these people to communicate with family members. I'm not sure if you personally have been involved in any of any of that, but can you tell us a bit of about what that's like for, for people working at Sunnybrook? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And in fact, for the last 10 plus years here in the critical care units of Sunnybrook, we've worked very hard to integrate our families into the care of the patients, to have them at the bedside during ward rounds, for instance, to have them very involved with decision making. And that's been an integral part of the quality of care that we've delivered. So you can imagine this is a, a significant step in, in the opposite direction where suddenly we cannot have families at the bedside, that they are distant. And you can imagine the fears and trepidations of a family who are at a patient's bedside and then multiply that up many times when you imagine what it must be like to sit at home and to uh, be awaiting a phone call or an update uh, not knowing what that phone call may include. From the staff's perspective, then we're trying our very best to phone every family member every day. Uh, I'll be honest and say it can't always happen just because of the pressures that we're under, uh, but that phone call certainly is usually very welcome. Uh, and uh, you obviously do your best to try and help them understand their loved one's situation, what's happening to them and, and, and uh, what sort of uh, direction they're going in. Uh, but even then, of course, they're at a distance and I think that must be extremely hard for the loved ones. It's extremely hard for the patients, but of course it's hard for the staff as well. And, uh, and the, you know, as you get further into an event like this, uh, you know, you can start to see the signs of uh, a tiredness, if not exhaustion, amongst the clinical teams who really have been very hard at it now for over three months and, uh, you know, often not without breaks, without vacations, uh, without time off. And even when they're having time off, of course, they're locked down like everybody else is. So, yeah, the toll is broad and across everybody. And as the staff are, are some of the people who are indeed uh, finding the toll of that heavy. Under normal circumstances, there would be people who fill positions 
where they offer psychological or spiritual support for patients. I'm wondering if those roles have been impacted by COVID-19 or if those people are still on site and able to assist. Hmm. Well, just this morning, I met a psychiatrist wearing scrubs on our intensive care unit. Uh, scrubs, of course, are normally worn by operating room staff and and a few others. They're now worn by almost everybody in the hospital, and uh, and uh, it's it's a it's a nice sign to see a clinical psychiatrist uh, in a, a critical care area wearing scrubs because they indeed want to get uh, access to the patients to give them the support they need. But I have to be honest and say, yes, it's, it is very difficult to get the support in. Uh, families, as we've just mentioned, but of course, uh, various uh, forms of, of uh, support from our team, uh, social workers, etc., chaplains, uh, and other religious counsellors. So, I, you know, I'd love to tell you that that hasn't been impacted, but I think it has. But I think we've done our very best to try and minimise the impact. But of course, we have to also minimise the exposure of uh, staff uh, and, of course, families uh, to patients who have COVID to try and avoid uh, this disease being transmitted further. I guess one of the challenges for physicians as well is that this is a new disease and we don't have a huge sort of evidence-based body of data to draw upon in terms of a treatment protocol. Is is that a fair assumption? Yes, it is. Um, Although sometimes that point is pushed uh, further than is appropriate. So uh, certainly uh, respiratory tract infections uh, caused by viruses, Uh, for instance, coronavirus, the COVID disease is a very similar virus to SARS. Uh, And there's many people working here at Sunnybrook who remember SARS and quite a few people who had SARS. And uh, the hospital is a very different place now with the high levels of infection prevention control and the integrated system of care around the hospitals of Toronto, which have all been vitally uh, important. Um, So we, we know a reasonable amount, but not a huge amount. But what we certainly lack is treatments. Uh, and uh, but I'm delighted to say that uh, one of the most impressive things I've seen in my career is not just the way our teams have mobilized to offer clinical care, but how they've mobilized to advance the evidence base, to get us knowledge and evidence from trials about new treatments. And I'm sure you saw in the press just last week uh, that the first treatment that actually reduces the number of patients who die from uh, COVID disease. A, a relatively simple steroid drug uh, has been identified by uh, putting patients like this into clinical trials in the middle of a pandemic, hard enough to do during uh, times uh, when there's no pandemic on, extraordinarily hard to do when there is, but a massive credit to people around the world, including uh, fantastic efforts here in Canada, uh, to actually study this disease and learn from it in real time. And that's been enormously impressive and is something uh, very positive that we can take out of this uh, event, which is otherwise, of course, quite catastrophic for in so many ways for our, our people of our country and indeed for our society and economy generally. In the United States, we're seeing in late June a fairly significant increase in case numbers. And this is happening now after a successful flattening of the curve, which is now spiking again. What goes through your mind when you see the progress that has been made seem to come undone? Yeah, indeed. I was just looking at the statistics today, as I do uh, many days a week. 
Um, the, the curve in the US is indeed very concerning. They obviously had a massive rise and peak, particularly in places like New York, New Jersey, etc. Um, and uh, and but due to a variety of reasons, some of which were political, they decided to uh, uh, move away from lockdown and social distancing in many uh, states. And sadly, it's those states now that have got massive rises again in this disease. This is not a second wave because these states didn't have high incidences of the disease in the first place. This is still the first wave. And I'm afraid it shows what happens when uh, a combination of events come together. Politicians get overly involved and make these issues political when we should be using the best science available. Uh, and also, of course, being only human, uh, we've been locked up for a long time now. And when you see people arrive on the beaches of Toronto and indeed many other countries uh, uh, in very large numbers, because it's a sunny day, you go, that's a very human thing to do, but yet uh, it's probably not the right thing to be doing just now. And I think in Canada, when we've had a, a, a relatively lower instance of this disease than some of the worst affected countries, uh, we were early, reasonably early locking down. We have to be cautious, very cautious coming out of this to try and avoid uh, further spikes as I think the right term to use is spikes rather than waves because this is still the first wave. Uh, so um, there's a lot still to be done and a lot of caution still needed. I'd like to just briefly touch on your home life and I'd be grateful if you could just paint a brief picture for me of what that looks like. How many of you are at home and, and what do your days look like when you're at home? Yeah, indeed. Well, um, when I'm not working clinically, I, I work from home and um, uh, because we're obviously trying to minimize the amount of uh, people that are in the hospital whenever possible. So I have my office set up now in the dining room and I work there all day. And um, uh, my wife, who does some voluntary teaching work, is now doing that on Zoom and in the other room. My uh, youngest daughter's just finished high school and is a hopefully about to go to university, if, if indeed university starts off as normal after the, the summer. Uh, and my oldest daughter, uh, who's uh, at third year in McGill, is actually in Montreal, uh, where, as you know, they're a little bit further ahead uh, with regard to coming out of lockdown. And so she's uh, uh, working up there just now. So we're all at home. We're in the very fortuitous situation that uh, we have a garden and uh, we have some space that is our own to, to move around in. Uh, so we're certainly a lot more fortunate than some families. That said, you know, I think every family in Canada, if not around the world, has a has a story that uh, of how this has personally affected them. And uh, we've had a very close family member die back in the UK and, of course, haven't been able to go over to the funeral or indeed to, to comfort other family members at this time. So... Uh, a story which, again, I think everyone has their own version of something that's markedly impacted their lives. So, but we're staying well and uh, we're being very strict with our lockdown because we, we want to stay well. We don't want to transfer this virus. And of course, I need to be able to come and work as an essential worker on the front line uh, uh, to care for sick people. And I'm guessing, being that you're working in a potentially infectious environment, that you are taking extraordinary precautions when you're doffing or getting ready to leave the hospital and, and cleaning up to ensure you're not taking anything home with you. 
Yeah, it's almost comical if the truth be told. Um, I'm uh, stripping down in my office and changing into clothes, cleaning my hands, you know, taking the scrubs back to the scrub machine, cleaning my hands again, heading home, going straight up to the shower uh, before anyone gets to say hello to me. And uh, so, uh, yes, we're going through quite extreme measures, but um, it's just the way it has to be. And lots of people are suffering worse. Is there one particular short vignette and hopefully a positive one that has transpired at the hospital with a COVID-19 patient that you might be able to comfortably share with us? Yeah, well, I mean, one of the overall things is is that there was certainly a lot of fear and, uh, and, and a lack of knowledge at the early stages of this disease. Um, in the best, in, with the best possible intention, people publishing very early results uh, to try and show what the outcome for this disease is, i.e., you know, how many people get better, how many people don't get better, etc. And some of the early results were actually uh, put out probably a little bit before they should have done. And they showed what looked like extremely poor outcomes from this disease, especially in intensive care. Uh, I'm glad to say that when the data is more mature and complete, uh, it still shows, sadly, that people, of course, die and the, the sickest people come to our intensive care. And, and of course, that's where uh, many people will die from this disease. But the, the good news is, is that, that uh, the, the things we know about care for people with such severe lung disease still apply. And if we apply them and do that well, uh, uh, that in fact, we can actually minimise the number of deaths. And I think we've done that. Uh, certainly at Sunnybrook we've uh, been pleased with uh, the amount of people we've managed to get better and um, you know got great pleasure in seeing people with who had quite severe COVID disease getting better and indeed leaving the hospital so there's some really uh, nice stories uh, uh, that have come from it that uh, that don't remove some of the gloom we had at the early days but at least put it into true context uh, that indeed many people get better and get on with their lives after this uh, so uh, some good news there I think. That's a good message to share. So this sound Brian indicates that we're hitting kind of the wrap-up segment of our interview and I'm going to ask you a few very quick questions and I'm just looking for a few very quick answers. So the first question is, what is the best part about helping people heal? Oh, it's a, it's a truly wonderful a privilege to have to be able to care for people when they're at their sickest time, their worst time in their life and indeed their families at the worst time in their life and uh, to be allowed to have access to that, to be allowed to be involved with that is a true uh, honour and privilege that goes along with my role and I, I can't tell you how important that is to me to know that I'm able to help in that way. What's the best part about going home after a long shift? Yeah, well, there's, it's always great to go home uh, because, uh, yep, it, it, it grounds you again. Uh, you see your family, it reminds you of what's important to you in, in life and gives you some perspective. And I think these things are very important, uh, especially at a time like this. Hospital food or home cooked? <laughs> yes, it's home cooked. I'm a bit of a cook myself, a bit of a chef, an amateur chef, and I, I love to cook. It's a great uh, way of, uh, of just decompressing at the end of the day. And I'll, I'm sure I'll be doing that tonight. My wife told me today she'll go and get something nice in, so I'll be cooking when I get home. Netflix or a good book or both? A good book um, uh, or maybe a documentary, uh, but not so much time on Netflix. 
Finally, what do you miss doing now that you cannot currently do? Well, I'm uh, I, I, two things. I think one, uh, uh, watching rugby, which is my game. Uh, there's not been any rugby on in the world until that last week in New Zealand started off, and I'm missing my rugby. And I miss you know just being able to socialise, go out for a bite of dinner with friends, and uh, so these are probably the two key things. Dr. Brian Cuthbertson, thank you so much for doing what you do and for taking the time to share your inside story today. Well, thank you. It's been lovely to speak to you. There's a lot of news grabbing the headlines these days, especially in the U.S. And, you know, as a result, it can be easy to forget we're still in the midst of a pandemic. You might even become a little bit complacent. And, you know, while that's understandable, please try not to. The science is super clear. Wash your hands frequently and wear a mask if you're going to be in an enclosed public space or very close to other people. You're worth it. Plus, we've got kind of a good thing going here, and I want to see you again next week. I'm Scott Simi. You've been listening to Inside Stories, presented by BMO. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Thank you.